think collectively we have to get together and decide how do we solve this crisis of growth, you know, which isn't going anywhere. And so how do we plan for the future, protect what we have? How do we look at the different living systems and find a way to coexist in symbiosis? And it's, it's really difficult. And if it doesn't happen in the urban areas, like you said, they're going to move to the outer ring cities. It's already happening. Welcome to Dirt and Sea, where we talk all about the places and spaces of North Carolina and the people who make them awesome. I'm your host, Jed Byrne. Throughout my career in real estate development, finance, commercial brokerage, engineering, and construction, I have covered just about all facets of the real estate and land use ecosystem. This show is an opportunity to not only share what I've learned with you, but to also introduce you to my friends who are doing truly transformative work and sharing their stories. With each episode of Dirt NC, my goal is simple. I want you to walk away learning something new about land use. I promise to keep it simple and straight to the point. If you ever have any questions for me, feel free to reach out on Twitter at OakCityCRE. Now let's jump in. So today I have the pleasure of speaking with Courtney Landall, who is a client success manager and colleague of mine at Withers Ravenel. Courtney has 20 years of landscape architectural experience, leading and implementing complex, multidisciplinary projects throughout the U.S. while working with clients to achieve rigorous schedule and budgetary demands. She has worked exclusively on urban healthcare, office, mixed use, parks, streetscapes, and campus design projects. With a background in the creative arts and design build projects, Courtney specializes in design that harmoniously balances materials and textures to provide an engaging site experience for the user that is also functional, cost-effective, and easy to maintain. Courtney also has over 10 years of experience providing ecological and sustainable design services. Courtney is currently serving in a national leadership role with the American Society of Landscape Architects, ASLA, as a member of the nominating committee and is serving as president-elect of the North Carolina chapter of ASLA. She is also an active member of the Triangle Chapter of Commercial Real Estate Women crew. In today's interview, I get the chance to talk to Courtney about all sorts of things. So we discuss art and Peace Corps and travel. We discuss uh, landscape architecture, and I get to learn what a ruffle is. Um, and we talk about how ecological design impacts life all around us. So why is this important? I think at the end of this conversation, you really get to see that, that we're all interconnected, right? So even as a community and as an ecosystem, everything that we do uh, has an impact on everything and everyone around us. So I really walked away with a strong sense of interconnectedness of our design and our life which was uh, great to hear. But first, we started off discussing Courtney's two truths and a lie. I had to choose between an art scholarship and a soccer scholarship when deciding where to go to school. I am a left-footed soccer player, but I'm a natural righty. My favorite type of art is digital illustration. Okay, so you were forced to choose between art and a soccer scholarship, was one. You are a right-footed soccer player, but everything else is left? I am a left-footed soccer player, but everything, but everything else, else is, is right. right. Okay, well, that's good to know. Get that completely backwards. And then your favorite type of art is digital illustration. Who's your favorite digital illustrator? Well, I'm really into Japanese anime. And, uh, you know, I can't tell you one person in particular, but there's a lot of animation that I like. 
Okay. And I was thinking the, the right versus left. I haven't seen you write anything, so I, have, I haven't been able to get any hints. They give that one away. But you've got two related to soccer, which makes me think the soccer piece is true. So my sense is you did get offered a soccer scholarship. But now did you have to pick between soccer and art? I can't ask you where you played soccer. That would be asking too much. No, I can't. Where did you play soccer? No, what position did you play in soccer? Left wing. Left wing. And you're a left-footed soccer player. And I'm exposing my lack of sports knowledge. But if you're left wing, that's the side that you would play on as a left-footed soccer player. But right, everything else. Okay, I'm going digital art. Digital, digital illustration is your favorite art. That is the lie. That is correct. I'm an old school tools kind of person. Old school tools. So no digital art. I do digital art. It's just not my favorite. I really like the pen and the paper. I like to feel the tooth of the paper. And I did choose an art scholarship. So I went to art school and spent a year of drawing and painting. And for years I did watercolor. So I've always enjoyed just traditional media. Was soccer in the college experience as well? It was not because art schools don't offer soccer, soccer teams. So, so you didn't, it wasn't choosing between the scholarship so much as choosing the school to go to because if you went to a place where you could play soccer, art was out. And if you went to an art school, soccer was out. Yeah, or it was art in a different form. You know, art from a university, a statewide university versus, you know, very specialized school, you know, which... Um, at the time, I really wanted to teach painting, and so I really wanted to get in with understanding what it means to develop fine art, exhibit fine art, and teach it. Okay, so, that, so that is something that I know very little about, and you brought up tooth of a paper. My, my parents are dentists, so I know a lot about teeth. Well, I don't. I hear a lot about teeth. How about that? But I've never heard of tooth and paper in the same sense. So what is tooth? when it comes to paper it's the rough surface of a paper okay and so you know you can have a cold pressed paper or a hot pressed paper hot pressed paper is very smooth like when it comes to watercolor uh or even drawing media um a cold pressed paper will have more of a, a bump or a ridge and it can take the the graphite a little better or you know the paint and so it all depends upon the type of media that you use and the type of look that you want. You know, do you want it really smooth or do you want it to look textural? So the tooth of a paper has more texture, which I like. Interesting. Okay, so tooth is more textured. That's. I mean, I, I feel like I've felt papers that have, I suppose, different tooth? Teeth? Yeah. How do you say it? <laughs> tooth of a paper. The tooth teeth. of a paper. The teeth is different. This <laughs> one has different teeth. But I, I yeah, never heard that expression before. Yeah, I think higher content um, of cotton can impact the amount of tooth. Like, so sometimes like resume paper, you know, yeah. you might say it has a tooth to it because it has a higher content of cotton or linen, something like and that. And you want, when somebody picks it up, you want it to feel special and unique. Exactly. So, okay, higher tooth. Well, Courtney, I appreciate that. If you could take a minute and uh, tell everybody kind of who you are and, and how do you introduce yourself if you meet a room full of strangers? Well... Quite frequently, I introduce myself as Sydney's mom. Sydney's my daughter. So uh, that's quite often the, the random people that I'm meeting these days. But, you know, I consider myself a wife, 
a mother, a daughter, an artist, and a landscape architect. And in professional settings, I'll introduce myself as, hi, I'm Courtney Landall. I'm a landscape architect. And I don't say project manager, client success manager with that usually, because I think just saying landscape architect is enough to describe, you know, what we do. And I think that as a profession, a lot of people don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. And so if they say project manager, they might assume I'm an engineer. If I say client success manager, they might assume I'm with software or something else yeah. unrelated. So no, that's that's good um, because again, that's kind of one of the reasons that I wanted to have you here. Is I think a lot of people have heard about landscape architecture, but probably right have a very surface level idea of, of what that is and what it is landscape architects do. So I definitely want to delve into that. Um, if you could take a few minutes to kind of walk through maybe where you are today, but also kind of how you got there. So where did you start from? You know, it could be before art school or, or art school and on. Growing up, I moved around a lot as a child. And, you know, there was a time when I was in, you know, five different schools in five years. And so, you know, at the time I didn't know any different. So, you know, that was, that was fine and normal to me. But as a result, I found myself retreating into nature to make sense of the world around me and nature and being outdoors was a way that I connected with the place that I had moved to. It was a way that, you know, I could listen to my own thoughts and get away from the noise of the world. And so I quickly found myself gravitating towards spaces, both, you know, natural and designed, um, in all the different places that I lived and I didn't initially pursue landscape architecture as a field. My mom was an architect and my assessment of her world was that she worked too hard. I never wanted to do anything related. Run far, far away. Far, far <laughs> away. And so it's like, I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to draw nature and, um, natural things. I really enjoyed still lives. So I, I still do. And I enjoyed drawing birds and flowers, butterflies, all those kinds of things. And so I continued doing art through high school and went off to art school. And then I went to the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. And there, it was really an interesting confluence of both the urban environment and um, nature, you know, Baltimore, I don't know if you know, has a Olmstedian legacy of parks. Olmsted designed all their park systems. And where I was living at the Institute, there was an Olmsted park right outside of um, our dorms. And, you know, it had somewhat fallen into disrepair. It wasn't really utilized a lot. There was also a lot of crime and poverty in the neighborhood. And so, you know, I just felt like I was seeing both the destruction of the natural world, the lack of respect and appreciation for these designed public spaces. And, you know, I was painting this and drawing this and I was just, um, feeling like I had to do more, you know, I had to find a way to get out in the world and make cities a better place to live, make them safer places to live. Um, expose more people to the beauty of nature and try to design spaces that people wanted to be in and take care of. And um, 
I wasn't sure exactly what or how I was going to do with that, but I knew that I needed to leave art school and think about my path forward. So I went home and, you know, spoke to my mom and, you know, happened to be doing it while we were out gardening. You know, my mom always gardened growing up. So love of plants was uh, in my in my life very early on from her. And so, you know, I said, Mom, who designs the spaces outside of the buildings? And, uh, you know, like, who puts that all together? Is that an artist? And she's like, oh, it's a landscape architect. And I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. And she said, yeah, if I had it to do over again, I might have chosen landscape architecture. Interesting. Yeah, so I found my way into landscape architecture school. And um, I wound up going to Virginia Tech. Was that after art school or did you have to leave art school to? I left art school and I came home for a year and I went to UNC Charlotte. I was living in Charlotte at the time and just took some basic classes to get them out of the way, you know, sort of core curriculum type Mm -hmm. classes. And then I looked at going to NC State and Virginia Tech, ultimately chose Virginia Tech and, uh, from that point, really got exposed to a lot of different things. Landscape architecture is broad. So yeah. when you ask what it is, um, at the time, and this this is still a debate today, there was a question over, should landscape architects be generalists or specialists? And so, you know, do you know a little bit about everything mm. and therefore you can design everything or work with specialists to design things? Or do you really want to focus in on one small area? And at the time, I was very much in the generalist camp. I wanted to learn everything that I could. I didn't want there to be a tool in my toolbox that I didn't have. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was going to be an urban designer is kind of what I thought I wanted to do. I had seen Olympic Plaza down in Atlanta, and I'd gotten to meet the people from EDAW who designed it and learned all the different ways in which they put a sense of design into the park. And so that was going to be my path. And so I went to the extension campus in Alexandria, Virginia, and worked for EDAW. And what I discovered there was that people weren't really generalists there in a sense. There was somebody who specialized in grading, somebody who specialized in planting design, and somebody who did the graphics and conceptual ideas. And and at the time, that really bothered me because I wanted to do it all. And little did I realize that, you know, they're just working as a team and that it's really hard to be great at everything. And so, you know, if I'd had a good mentor at the time, they might have said, Courtney, don't get so caught up about this. This is this is how we get better. This is how we inspire each other. This mm-hmm. is how we collaborate. But I said, no, um, you know, this is this is not what I want to do. So it made me question the type of place that I wanted to work. And I began to think, OK, well, I need to work at this job and this job and this job in order to, like, develop this tool and that tool. <laughs> Build and out the skill set. That's right. But at the same point in time, I'd gone through a little bit of a um, crisis of faith in my profession and what I wanted to do. And so I said, okay, I'm going to take some time off yet again, because I'd put all my eggs in the landscape architecture basket. I'd left art school. And so I went into the Peace Corps. And so I worked in Africa for 
about a year. I wound up early terminating for love <laughs> in various reasons, but um, still married to him today, so it was worth it. Congrats. Thank you. But uh, in Africa, I was an agroforestry volunteer and really got to delve into water resources. And at the time, I thought, okay, well, the next tool I really want to learn is environmental design, ecological design. I want to... I want to learn how to protect water resources with the idea that I want to bring uh, ecological design back to the urban environment, urban ecology is really what my focus was going to be. And But that was one of many tools that I wanted to learn in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. Still sticking with the generalist theme. Still spe- sticking with the generalist theme. But then I wound up doing that for about 10 years <laughs> almost. <laughs> And so, you know, that happened for a variety of reasons, you know, it's like once you get into something, there's more that you can learn. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I worked for two different firms while I was doing that. And then also the economy tanked and I discovered landscape architecture is not always the most resilient profession, but I happened to be in a very resilient line of the profession. And so I stayed employed. I was never out of work and, um, you know, was able to get promoted, eventually worked my way up to be department manager and, you know, experienced a lot of success doing that for a little while until I ultimately said, okay, I think this has run its course and I'm ready to, you know, get back into the urban environment and back into bringing ecological design to uh, more sort of standard landscape architecture. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that brings us to a, a good kind of point of, of, you know, when you talk about specialization and generalization, before we started recording, one of the things I talked about is is one of the reasons I, I enjoy these interviews is we get to really kind of focus in on one point. And, and in our discussion, that was ecological design. And so as someone who, the more I talk to people, the more I realize how little I learn. And I can, I mean, just talking to you now, as someone from Baltimore, I had no idea of the Olmstead you know, history of our parks, which is embarrassing, but again, that's why I like talking to people. Um, and then I too had the, the similar story of, you know, I, I, my last intern- internship in college was, uh, in construction in commercial, um, well, commercial construction. And I left there thinking, well, I'm never going to buildings are not for me and I'm never going to get into construction. And then of course spent the next, you know, 15 years of my career doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess never say never. That's right. Um, but, but what does, you know, for, 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 from an outsider's perspective, ecological design sounds like a pretty big topic and a pretty big idea. But what, what does ecological design mean to you? To me, it just means using the natural tools of the earth to heal itself. You know, landscape architecture and development in general, unfortunately, is inherently destructive. Mm-hmm. You know, when we develop a site, we take and we scrape the protective layer off of the earth and we put all of these inputs into it and it's just kind of like the human body in a way it's Mm -hmm. like i like pizza but it's bad for me and so um you know you go to the doctor and the doctor says well you need to exercise more you need to you need to stop you know doing these destructive habits and so ecological design is is you know working with the earth to you know like if you think about it like the human body again if you have bad gut health they tell you take probiotics you know so it's like you're restoring soil health you're bringing the natural bacteria back to the soil because the earth is a living breathing thing and so so in 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 this work is that typically or i guess how often is it a a repair or, or dealing with destruction from 
human versus, I guess, is it always human intervention, for lack of a better word? We came in and messed it up, or or is there part of the work where it relates to, I guess that's natural always the case. destruction. Yeah, there there you can go. be that's natural destruction. Okay. Um, certainly, you know, uh, after Hurricane Sandy, you know, I think there was a lot of a lot of looking at one flooding, but two, looking at um, how do we repair and restore after all these downed trees, and how do we build resilient ecosystems mm-hmm. to manage? I mean, but, but what caused Hurricane Sandy? Climate change, you know. Um, it's it's hard to it all say circles necessarily. back. To, it all circles, circles back, back to, to, to human intervention. <laughs> it does. It does. So so we've already established that humans are at fault. It's all of our faults. But why why does why is this important, either either to you or to the profession? Why is ecological design important? Well, I mean, I would ask, why isn't it important? Is the first question. I mean, because we all live on the earth. Mm-hmm. We all want to continue to live on the earth. Ideally. Not on space. Ideally. We want to protect it for future generations. Except Elon Musk. He's already out. He's 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 called it quits. <laughs> yes, and, and with, with his little trip to space, how much carbon did he emit into the atmosphere? It's like, he doesn't care, he's leaving. He's gone. <laughs> that's right. So it's, right, for the for ones who want to be here and want to stick around. It's important. But beyond that, I do believe that nature is a healer. It heals our our hearts and our minds. And I think during COVID, we've seen the impact of that. We've seen the fact that people are getting out into nature just to um, have a break. It's healthy to be out in nature. So nature's a healer. The fruits of the earth also heal our bodies. And it's a teacher. I feel like it teaches us that maybe we can live a little bit more simply than we think that we can. You know, we don't need all of the things that we surround ourselves with. We don't necessarily have to live in this intensive rat race. We may choose to, but it reminds us that there are alternatives and simpler ways of living. It reminds us that we're all connected. And so I think that it is, it's just a really valuable way of, you know, being a part of the universe. So, And so, so for, for projects that you worked on, is, are you typically brought in... Are you typically brought in in response to an existing condition? I mean, so if somebody buys a property or buys a parcel and or or is it, hey, we know we're going to have to disrupt this um, plot of land to build what we want. So we want to make sure that after we do the work, the the repair can happen well. I wish it was always that way, but no, um, usually it's. I mean, as a landscape architect, we're often just brought in because somebody wants to develop a piece of land and ecological design may not even be their goal. Mm-hmm. You know, as an environmental consultant, as I was for a number of years, we were brought in because there's a wetland on our site and we're going to impact it. Mm-hmm. And we know that we've got federal permits that we have to apply for and we need your help, you know, in order so that I can develop my piece of land. Um, you know, there are some do-gooders out there. We're working with a residential designer right now who wants to build a bird-friendly neighborhood mm-hmm. and wants to have pollinators. Another residential designer that we're working with also wants to do a lot of pollinators, and they're recommending pollinator planting species as part of their covenants and restrictions mm-hmm. for the homeowners in their neighborhoods. So, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there that are starting to see the value in ecological design, but I would say that 
a lot of what we provide is um, not necessarily asked for by name, but I, I think people see the beauty of nature and they may not necessarily call it ecological design, but they can appreciate beauty when they see it. They can mm -hmm. appreciate that there are butterflies and birds and, and bees attracted to their property. And they also appreciate the economic benefit of okay, we didn't have to put in an expensive stormwater vault or SCM. You know, we're able to manage things with bioswales and bioretention. We're able to put in, you know, maybe a filtera system with a, a tree in it. And so we can manage stormwater and our, our tree island all in one space. Right. You know, so there's economic benefit to it, too, that they can appreciate. And that, I think, is, again, one of the, the benefits of having a consultant who has that expertise that can, can bring in those ideas and bring that kind of value proposition to the forefront to say, hey, listen, I know this is where your vision is and, and this is what you're trying to accomplish. Well, here's a way that we can accomplish that and accomplish something better that you're going to appreciate that your residents or clients or tenants are going to appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think people want to move to green spaces and places. I mean, the the value of being in a neighborhood with trees. I mean, we know that it adds to the bottom line of a project mm -hmm. and uh, the bottom line to the housing values, for example. And I mean, it's healthy too. So people want good air quality. Yeah. They don't want to live in, you know, LA with smog. Some people may, but you know, a lot of people have given an alternative, right. you know, they're going to choose the healthier place to live. Well, that's, I think one of the interesting things about, COVID and, and I can think this kind of thinking is maybe people don't understand the benefits, but a lot of people understand the value of something once it's gone. And so you think about open spaces, green spaces, you think about clean air and water, and, and hopefully we never get to a place where, you know, clean water is a major issue for everybody, but you're seeing that pop up here and there already. And in lots of places it is an issue, but for sure, I mean, once, once something is taken away, or, or if you go to a place that doesn't have shade or birds or, you know, you kind of just notice inherently something is missing. It's very true. I mean, the Clean Water Act, you know, we did have bad water. We did have, you know, smog, clean air and, you know, environmental regulations were put into place to help solve those things. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've reaped the benefits of that. You go to other places, um, you know, in Africa, the problem is desertification because they have slashed and burned agriculture for a very long time. And when you do that, all of the carbon that's imbued in, in the trees and in the vegetation, it's, you know, turned to, turned to ash basically. And it, it just doesn't keep feeding the system. Mm. And, and then you also eliminate all of the ability um, for trees, you know, sequester carbon in the first place. If they're gone, you know, there's nothing that can sequester that carbon from the environment. And so, you know, you deal with global warming, you deal with um, compacted soils, soils robbed of nutrients, and then you can't grow food. Mm -hmm. And so that's the crisis with, you know, food production in Africa. And that's why we were brought in to plant trees to build windbreaks to help maintain a stable soil environment we were brought in to teach people how to compost and so we were looking at really sort of restoring that layer which is so important for life yeah and that's kind of i can't think of a way to say this without being kind of punny but it's the root cause right so if there's a food shortage yes you can provide food you can you can 
bring in food, you can you can grow food, but if you're not solving kind of the root problems with water and soil, you're you're not going to effectively reach those solutions. Right. You know, they were looking at hybrid seeds at the time. You know, that's what everybody wanted. They wanted the seeds that could grow better food production, mm. but they were not necessarily seeds with local rootstocks. They were not going to reproduce. They were, you know, it was a one stop and done. Mm -hmm. And it would help them in that difficult condition that they were in, but it was not a long term viable solution. Right. And especially if all the things that created those conditions in the first place were ongoing. Um, right. Things circle back and get worse over time. So we, you, we talked a bit about regulation and how, you know, the Clean Water Act has, has changed how we view and value and, and kind of look at the problem of clean water. But in addition to the regulatory changes, what are some ways that you've seen clients, either mindsets or values change around ecological design throughout your career? Well, I think people are just a lot more open to it than they used to be. I think that it doesn't shock people. It doesn't feel that necessarily you're out to just rob them of the development potential and uh, out to spend their money. So that in and of itself is a win. But, you know, if you look at how popular things like beekeeping have become, you go to you know New York City and they're actually having a problem right now because everybody wants to raise honeybees mm -hmm. that the native bee populations are now under threat and so you know it's 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 us it shows us the popularity of environmental themes that people people recognize the value in growing their own food mm -hmm. and they recognize the value of bees to pollinate food and so there's been a, a mind shift. And I can't tell you exactly, you know, what has brought that about, whether it's climate change or whether it's food network being mm, on yeah. TV and everybody Media. wants to grow better food. Um, so, you know, I think people are, are more open to it from that global warming is reminding us of the carbon scrubbing value of trees and the cooling effects of shade. Mm -hmm. So I think there have been things that have been happening in the environment as well as in the culture, you know, that are starting to shift the mindset. Yeah, I like that. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, you talk, you talk about bees. I have, I have no desire to keep bees personally, but I know plenty of people who do. And even, you know, as, a, as I scroll through Instagram, you see all sorts of, I mean, I don't know if I get ads, but like there was a season where I was getting all of this bee content. Um, and so, right. I mean, I, I do think it's getting out there. And I think that as you start to, to delve into certain aspects of food and water and, and, you know, plants and animals and all these different things, as you kind of peek under the hood a little bit, you start to see how different things are connected. And, um, right. If we didn't have bees, well, we wouldn't have vegetables. If we didn't have vegetables, we wouldn't have life, you know? And so it's, it's, I think maybe 20 or 30 years ago, if you said, you know, bees are kind of what, you know, bees can save the world. I think most people look at you like you're pretty strange, but now I think a lot more people kind of, understand that to a degree, which is certainly helpful. Um, what do you think, you know, when, when you're discussing ecological designs, it sounds like while the culture and the knowledge base and kind of the ideas have shifted some, what are, what are some of the biggest hurdles that you see in implementing uh, these ecological design principles? Well, you know, one of the things that I struggle with a little bit is what people think of green or what, what their vision of what green is 
and for a lot of people, it's still sheared hollies and lawn. You know, that is green to them because it's green all year round, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, But the problem with that is all of the inputs and challenges that are involved with keeping a lawn green. You've got fertilizers, you've got pesticides, you know, when you cut a lawn, you're cutting the blades of the grass. And so it's constantly having to regrow, which is robbing nitrogen of the soil. You're walking on the lawn, you know, which is creating compaction of the soil. Mm -hmm. And so when you get rid of the lawn, you know, which as I did in my own yard, my own yard had the previous owners had used a lot of pesticides. They sprayed mosquitoes. They had, um, you know, basically just lawn and maybe five shrubs. So we blanketed the lawn with wood chips, you know, it's just a permaculture method of removing lawn and starting to regrow soil. And it takes a while, but we started with no, no bugs in the soil. Like there were no earthworms. There Mm. was nothing. It was dead. I couldn't grow things and slowly, but surely like we have tons of earthworms now, you know, we compost and so we're adding compost back to the soil. So it's starting to rebuild, restore itself. And we're also, you know, planting pollinator plants, you know, which are bringing the bees and the butterflies and the birds, you know, it's amazing how getting rid of the lawn has brought so much more wildlife because wildlife can hide more Mm -hmm. in vegetated environments Mm -hmm. than they can out in exposed lawn. So this notion of what is green versus, you know, the natural world, I think sometimes people think when you create green, it's it's different. It's their own like creation versus mm-hmm. nature, which people see as beautiful, but not something that belongs, you know, either in their yard or on their project. So that's one of the challenges. Other challenges are regulatory, you know, in the municipal world. Um, I think that a lot of development ordinances have come a long way, but in the city of Raleigh, for example, last year I was working on an apartment project and we were trying to put impermeable pavers into the parking lot, which would have helped from a stormwater perspective. You know, it would have been a cool thing to expose the residents to it, but it required an easement around it because it's treated like a stormwater device. And that easement impacted our ability to meet the landscape ordinance, you know, for having tree spacing. It limited where we could put the building. And I don't remember how much it was, but it was enough of an impact on the project that said, well, that's a great idea, but it's not going to work. Otherwise I'd have to redesign my project. Yeah. So we've got to find a way in which innovative practices can be achieved more readily and that they're actually incentivized right now. They still there's no incentive necessarily for doing the right thing. Well, it's, it sounds like, I mean, that the, the multifamily example you gave, it almost sounds like it's not, I mean, part of it, yes, there, there's lack of incentive, but there's also disincentive, right? And so my sense would be, though, that, that most people in the regulatory and planning world would want these types of things because they, they talk about them elsewhere in the code, but it's when you, we kind of have this overlap or this conflict and again from the developer if you're saying okay well yes maybe we can go through and and get a variance or get them to change or make a special exemption or something but it just takes time and there's risk and all this stuff and you say well it's you know a great idea but i can't spend the next six months trying to find a workaround for this and so my sense is usually it just gets skipped usually gets skipped you know i would say that codes are changing and you know, I, I can't say for certain that the city of Raleigh hasn't updated their code since then. I know yeah. that they are looking at street sections that 
create an opportunity for more innovative stormwater management. And that, that makes me very happy. Um, I think we've got to get to the point though, where, you know, it's, it's so easy that it's a no brainer. And so when I was living in the city of Seattle, they were working on a code called the green factor, which looked at ways of, it was kind of interesting and in some ways it was like a swap, but they were looking at ways in which you could reduce required open space. If you Mm -hmm. did innovative stormwater management, if you did rooftop gardens, if you had, you know, biodiversity in your plant material, if you use native plants. And so there were a number of different ways in which you could do things that had a high ecological value, Mm -hmm. but there was actual benefit to the developer because they could have potentially increased density on their site. And so they were incentivizing doing the right thing as a means of not just having, you know, in these apartment complexes, for example, open space. What is that? It's amenity. It's not necessarily planted area. Um, You know, it's not necessarily going to be protected native lands. So, you know, it was recognizing a problem in their existing code and finding a way to tweak it to have it be a win-win solution. Well, I do think, uh, I think I actually just read a, a proposed text change in the city of Raleigh where they were talking about allowing green roof or a certain percentage of green roof to count as open space, which again would help, if, if not incentivize, definitely reduce the barrier to, to adding some of those elements to a project. And I mean, the thing that I struggle with is I, I don't know the best way for us as a community to come together and kind of pick priorities and say like, yes, if you, if you, you know, allow more dense development, for example, you're using less square footage of earth I mean, for a given amount of square footage of space. And so while, while there's definitely some downsides to taller buildings, there's some upsides and how do, how do we as a community come together and say, what is it that we're trying to what's the goal that we're trying to achieve? And um, I think cities are inherently complicated. I think it's, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of parties involved. Um, But again, I I think that's one of the reasons I like having these conversations is, is hopefully it, it gets people out there thinking about these things and talking about these things so that, that we can move towards a target that we all kind of want. Um, Cause it does, you know, when, when people try to, I think, innovate in a city, construct or you know in a city environment it uh it can be challenging sometimes um but again this is a problem that people have all over the country and all over the world and so you know there are probably other places that have at least proposed solutions that potentially could work here yeah absolutely and i think that it's a question that or it's many questions that need to be addressed because you know, Raleigh is a place where people are moving to. It's one of the top places to live. And, you know, with my frame of reference from Seattle, you know, when Amazon came in, housing prices went up, there was a housing shortage. And so, you know, they, they really dealt with a lot of these, um, you know, affordable housing issues as well as, um, impact to natural resources. Mm -hmm. And so Raleigh is a place where it's still city of Oaks. We still have lots of large trees. Like you said, you don't know what you've got until it's gone, but we stand to lose a lot of that if we aren't careful with our development. And then what does that mean to the climate? You know, there are places in Raleigh where it's 10 degrees hotter than others. And so those are places where we've wiped out the trees. How do we reconcile this growth? And I think it's going to be hard for people, but a growth, urban growth boundaries, as well as going upward, Mm -hmm. 
I think it's something that we'll have to look at, but it's hard when you think of Raleigh as being, you know, this walkable small town, you Mm -hmm. know, people are just going to have to have to get over that a little bit and, and find ways to, you know, embrace what's great about here, but also allow it to grow for the future. Otherwise we're going to be in trouble. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, my general stance on things is I try not to tell people what the right answer is or what they should think. But I often do, especially when it comes to trees, I think people miss the concept that if, if we say no to, you know, homes or residences or houses or businesses here, you know, inside the Beltline or in Raleigh, that that's kind of saying yes to something else. And a lot of times if that alternative is a greenfield site someplace else, right, you're saving some trees here, but at the cost of multiples of, you know, if you're saving 10 trees here, you're losing a thousand trees elsewhere. And, and so it's not, I mean, every, like you talked about at the beginning, everything's kind of connected and interconnected. And so I think it's, it's, um, if, if that is the desired outcome for people, then I can't, again, I, I, it's usually not my place to tell them that they're wrong, but I, I think a lot of times people miss that fact is that, you know, if, if you have a, an apartment community here that's on, 12 acres well that's 300 units on 12 acres if you do the same thing on on a four per unit suburban environment then it's just i mean way more acreage of trees and so if you're really trying to protect trees maybe keeping out apartments isn't the best solution Um, or it causes unintended consequences and i think that's that's part of the conversation that i want to have and, and push forward is just think about it holistically instead of on a site by site and parcel by parcel basis because we're interconnected. It is, it is true. And, you know, um, you know, you can look at it that way for growth. You can look at it for trees. You can look at it for water resources. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the whole concept of, um, you know, back in the environmental world, mitigation banking versus, you know, postage stamp wetlands, what's the value, you know, there's pros and cons to each, but I think collectively we have to get together and decide how do we solve this crisis of growth, you know, which isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so how do we plan for the future, protect what we have? How do we look at the different living systems and find a way to coexist in symbiosis? And it's, it's really difficult. And if it doesn't happen in the urban areas, like you said, they're going to move to the outer ring cities. It's already happening. You know, I'm working on a project in Indian land, South Carolina, which I didn't even know was a town, but apparently it is. And it's happening in a place like Indian land because it's outside of Charlotte and in Indian land, it's easier to develop. It's, um, you know, fewer restrictions. Mm -hmm. And so people are going where it's easier, where there are greenfield sites, but you know, what used to be farmland, what used to be, you know, open natural area is now becoming, um, suburbs, Mm -hmm. suburbs of the cities. And that brings up, I mean, another thing again, we talked about at the very beginning is this kind of full circle of, of food right so i mean if if we're using up farmlands for housing you know yes you're solving a housing issue but you know do we want to get to a place where we are starting to limit the the amount of places that we can grow food and provide our own food and you know obviously i think one of the the luxuries of america is we we are typically not land constraint we have plenty of land but that i don't think happens forever um and and there will come a time where we see the negative impacts of that and that uh i think will get a lot of people's attention and hopefully it's not too late yeah i mean all you have to do is look at places like texas right i mean texas has lots and lots of land and they're still building 
I'm from Texas. This is why I think you of get it to, as You get example. to say that, yeah. I get to say that. Love it. But um, they have impacted flood zones. I mean, Houston is flat. It's basically mm-hmm. a lot of it is floodplain. They've paved it. We saw it with Harvey, you know. Um, and issues like that are just going to keep happening. And so clearly this ability to just keep building, 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 it has negative consequences. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we are starting to get built out in places. You know, one of my, one of my friends who moved here said, you know, Carrie's built out. I can't find a house. I'm like, well, there are plenty of older houses that you might be able to look at. It doesn't have to be new construction, mm-hmm. but again, what is this idea of what is beautiful? You know, it's it's a, a brand new home that they don't have to worry about. And they're complaining that there aren't any trees, that these houses are on small lots. I'm like, that's what you get when you have a housing shortage and there's not enough land and you want a big house. You don't get trees too. So, you know, we have had the luxury of being able to have large houses and large lots out here in North Carolina, not all cities in the u.s and in the world are that way Mm -hmm. and we can get by with a lot less so we're we're gonna have to start thinking about that we're gonna see those shifts and changes as time goes on right all these all these decisions have um implications and there's there's ramifications for our, our decisions so um kind of circling back to to the ecological design specific in in your career what are some of the either either projects or specific features of a project that you are most proud of uh, from an ecological design perspective that you've worked on? Well, there's one project that I remember when I was an environmental consultant out in Seattle that we worked on. It was called Squawk Valley Park, and it was in the town of Issaquah. And it was right next to an active recreation park, you know, which had its ball fields and all, but this was more of the passive park. Okay. And so you could literally say it's an extension of the active park, but it had its own name. And it was on Issaquah Creek, which was a salmon bearing stream. And Issaquah Creek, you know, has tons of salmon going through there, but it was a former Corps of Engineers project so back in the 40s it was diked and so um you know it's basically like a flume and with all of the development that was happening in the area there was a lot of sedimentation in the creek there was a lot of velocity in the creek and so we were hired on initially to help provide some salmon habitat and help slow the velocity of the creek and help with flood issues and so as a byproduct of that though we also through you know the funding mechanisms which we were using to restore the creek we were also able to do a master plan for the park the upland portion of the park so all in all we breached a 20-foot dike in order to build a floodplain habitat so we excavated out the dike in order to create places for salmon refuge and for sedimentation and overflow during high velocity storm events. We added pools and riffles to the stream channel, which allowed salmon to um, spawn and rear and have places that they could sort of get out of the the velocity of the stream. Did you say riffles? Yes. What is a riffle? (laughs) 
A riffle is a it's a sloped, cobbled section of stream. You know, salmon swim upstream, okay. and so the riffle is a part where they're actively swimming. And a pool is where after they get up past the riffle, they can like hang out in the pool and like catch their breath, Got it. <laughs> relax. Got it. Okay. I don't know that I've ever heard the word riffle before, but I like it. Yeah, it's it's fun. Um, and so, you know, we put large woody debris in the stream channel, which help direct flow and also provide habitat for rearing of salmon. So that was all in the stream channel. But then we worked on the upland portion of the park, which had numerous wetlands. And so we did boardwalks over the wetlands. We worked with the Mountains to Sound Greenway, which was a nonprofit group dedicated to restoring um, you know, basically that was from Clayelm to Ellensburg. So they were building like essentially a green corridor through the state mm. and it was a recreational amenity. It's now a national heritage site, I think, or state heritage site. I'm not sure which, but it, it got some sort of formal designation recently. And so they would bring in plants and we actually got to get our hands dirty and restore it. And so, um, you know, we designed it and then we got to put the plants in the ground we also did an interpretive uh, series of signs to teach people about what was happening out on the site. And so, you know, it checked a lot of my boxes in terms of, one, I was making an improvement to a stream channel. I was restoring wetlands, adding native plants, and I was teaching malleable minds about the earth and about... Uh, you know, natural processes. and Well, that's, I mean, it, it, we talked a little bit before. I mean, that's, it sounds like a really cool project and also sounds like, you know, with the Greenway, with the active park, you know, people are going to come to play baseball and then hear about this and go take a walk and, and experience. I mean, it seems like, I, I don't know if one of the main barriers is, is education or understanding or kind of comprehending the impacts of our choices or the impacts of our non-choices but you know what what in your experience you know we talked about barriers what are some ways that you think we might either either as a profession right through doing the work and showcasing the work and teaching about the work or, or something else but how, how might we as a um, community or individuals help reduce some of those barriers that we've either actively or inact or unintentionally put in place to this type of, of design and work and, and healing. You know, I think we need to start speaking out about it more. I think we need to start making it more a part of our day-to-day -day work. Mm -hmm. I think we need to find champions and people, you know, politics plays a big role in a lot of different things. I think we need to find some political champions that are willing to you know, support this and recommend its use to our cities and counties. Mm -hmm. I think that we as a society need to get kids off their devices and out into nature more. You know, to say I believe the children are the future is is <laughs> is the way I think that they are. And I think that when they believe it, they will fight for it and they will remind us who have become tired and apathetic mm -hmm. of its importance and its value. You know, my daughter, when she gets upset that a butterfly was stepped on or lost a wing, you know, it, it reminds me that every life matters and every life matters to children. Mm -hmm. And so it ought to matter to us too. 
so I think we need more people reminding us of its importance and its value and spreading the word. And I think that the more people that catch on, the more that it becomes mainstream. And and what about kind of as a last thought, is there anything that you would, would ask the audience to go do or to read or to see? Well, I would say get your hands dirty, dig in your soil and see what's out there. You know, I, I, always have lived on the coast except for Raleigh. Raleigh and Dallas are the only two times I've ever lived in non-coastal areas. And there's a whole lot of life that happens in the marsh and um, in the estuaries, you know, in the confluence of, of streams and the coast. Um, you know, when you go to the beach, you can watch the critters running in the, the sand. So, you know, get out and see what's out there, see what's living. And you realize that you know, it's not just a piece of dirt, it's not just a piece of land, it's, it's part of a living, breathing system. And I would say if you're looking for good reading material, a Sand County Almanac is a good standby. You know, he takes you through his experience of living on his farm, you know, every month of the year, the different things that happen. And he ends it with how we should approach the land and that we each need our own land ethic and connection to the land. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the uh, one of, you know, you talk about living near the sea, and I definitely think there's a lot of life in the sea, but it always surprises me, even in town, and this usually happens with the kids, but if you take the time to just stop and be still in nature, you'll often find that there's a lot more around you than um, you notice if you're just speeding through. That's absolutely right. You know, I... I moved back to North Carolina in part because of all of the songbirds. I'm an avid birder. And so, you know, the amount of bird species that I can get in my own backyard, it just floors me. But beyond that, when you start to look at increasing the life in your own backyard or on a project site, you realize if you build it, they will come. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I have a single plant that's, a Joe pie weed plant, I get probably 30 bees on it. You know, it's a native and it tells you that the wildlife out there, they're craving uh, native plant materials. They're craving things that are blooming at this time of year, you know, and we just were wiping out what they normally use. You know, that's why monarchs are, are having destruction of habitat because we've wiped out all the milkweed because people considered it a weed and it's the only species that they feed off of. Mm. So, you know, if we start paying attention to what's around us, we can begin to recognize um, when things go away, why they go away, and how to bring them back if we can, hopefully before they're lost. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's just a matter of us getting out of our own way. Because like you said, it's it's the stuff that's naturally occurring and really available. So, well, Courtney, Landall, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much for answering all of my questions and uh, look forward to the next time we get a chance to speak. Thank you. It's been fun. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Courtney Landall as much as I did. Uh, as I said at the beginning of the interview, it really was a conversation all about kind of the interconnectedness of life and design and our environment. And I, I, I definitely just walked away with a sense of, of we're all in this together. So I just want to thank Courtney again for sharing her time and her knowledge with us. As always, I'm so grateful that you have chosen to share this time with me. If you ever have any questions about Dirt NC or any land use related issues, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Oak City CRE. 
Also, if you're looking for a simple and straight to the point weekly update on commercial development in Raleigh, you can subscribe to my newsletter at www.oakcitycre.com. Until next time, thank you.